attorney Vince Davis and attorney Raj Matani. We are talking about divorce and family law this evening. We're going to be covering topics such as child custody, child support, division of assets, custody and spousal support. And we're also going to be talking tonight about something called limited scope or bundled services. Good evening, Raj. Are you with me? Yeah, I'm here, Vince. How are you this evening? Good. How are you doing? Doing great, doing great. Ready to uh, talk to our listeners once again for another week and hopefully give them some great information. Okay. We previously discussed talking about four different areas of uh, family law tonight. What were those four areas? So you touched on them a little bit in your introduction, but some of the big areas we're going to go over tonight are, we spend a lot of time, I think, talking about spousal support, when you can ask for it, the versions of which you can ask for it, and and how it affects your case. Um, We're going to be letting the listeners know about how to start a dissolution case, what basic forms you need to put together, information you need to have ready before you file your case. And uh, we're going to spend some time talking about limited scope representation or unbundled services uh, as an alternative to the traditional law firm retention model. Uh, So those are some of the big areas we're going to go through. And then if we have any callers, we'd love to take some calls and, and see if we can uh, get people started down the road of uh, either initiating a case or or working towards a resolution. So uh, I'm excited to talk about those with you tonight, Vince. Great, great. Let's start off right away with uh, some spousal support. Is spousal support an alimony? Is that the same thing? Alimony is sort of the colloquial term for it. It's defined within the family code as spousal support, continually referred to as spousal support. Um, I think laymen mostly refer to it as alimony, but essentially what the courts are concerned with are a bunch of factors and indicators that uh, are used to determine what's an appropriate amount and length of time to pay spousal support to the lower-earning party. Well, tell me, you know, many years ago when I started doing family law, I heard the term spousal support, and I wasn't quite sure what that meant. What What is the mm-hmm. general definition of spousal support? So spousal support is the amount of money that a either non-working spouse or su- supported spouse during the time of the marriage would need to either maintain their standard of living or the marital standard of living during the time of the divorce litigation, divorce process. And then after that, what would be a reasonable amount of money for them, for the supported party, um, to help them get back on their feet, reestablish their life, and become eventually self-supporting? Okay, now, you know, when I started doing family law, Someone said to me, what's the temporary spousal support and what's permanent spousal support? Can you tell me what those are? What's that all about? Yeah, so there's two stages in the divorce process when someone who was supported during the length of the marriage would theoretically need money. The first 
point in time is during the initiation of the divorce litigation. So let's take the traditional example of, of the husband is divorcing the wife uh, and the traditional example of the husband is typically the higher wage earner. Um, in this new millennium uh, and and the way that family structures have changed, this can this is by no means intended to flight one gender over the other, but for the sake of an example, we're going to use the the husband as the traditional uh, moving party. Um, during that time where the divorce is initiated, um, the supported the supported party needs to have money to maintain the standard of living and have equal access to representation while this whole process is going on. This is called 10-day litte support or temporary spousal support. And through a motion to the court, they can ask for temporary support to help them through the divorce litigation. And then once that's done upon judgment, the court can order that a longer term of support for either an indefinite or definite amount of time be ordered to be paid. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of complicating factors to it, but there's two stages in which you can ask for it, either during the litigation and then obviously upon judgment. I see. So what are the amounts, how do, what are the amounts of spousal support and how is it computed? So as, uh, if we have any returning listeners, I think one of the topics we previously covered was child support and how there's a standard software called the DisoMaster or the XSpouse or um, there are some other ones out there that help the court in deciding what's an appropriate amount of support during this time that take into account several factors um, and these are called the 4320 factors or family code 4320 factors that all go into this system and help the court in determining uh, what is an appropriate amount of support? Um, the two biggest indicators of this are the incomes of the parties, potential expenses of the parties, and the need of another party and the ability to pay by the um, paying party for that amount of money. Um, so what would happen typically is the court would do a full hearing typically on all of these factors, make a finding of fact as to all of those factors, and also run a DISO master report, and it will yield a number that could be considered an appropriate amount of support. Now, parties can always argue, your attorneys can always argue for whether or not that's an appropriate number, um, and that's why it's called a guideline number, but um, parties go back and forth as to all these factors and give arguments to the court as to whether or not this guideline number is appropriate or inappropriate. Okay, so you mentioned guideline factors. Tell me a little bit about what that means. Okay, so um, like I said, the, there's a software called the Disno Master or XFILES that yields the number for us as a software program. Um, that software program, the main inputs are the earning income uh, of either party and whether there are specific expenses like union dues or 401k payments or child care costs, health insurance costs, all these other kinds of things. Beyond those specific financial numbers, the court is also going to look into these 4320 factors. 
Um, and if people want to follow along with us, they can literally type in family code 4320 on a Google search, and it will take you right to this code section. But there are about nine factors here um, that are taken into account of by the court, and these include um, sort of what's the ability of the supporting party to receive a job, what um, the supporting party did during the life of the marriage to contribute to the earning party's um, success in their career, um, and more importantly, what is the ability of the su supporting party to potentially receive money on their own uh, or be able to earn a living on their own. Um, and there's a lot of these factors which we could get into, which more specifically apply to each person and their and their individual case. Um, but like I said, you know, these guideline factors are really meant to give the court an overall perspective of what the marital standard of living was and how the supporting party um, can appropriately maintain that uh, to the sports head party. So um, it's pretty complicated. I was in a, in a hearing on it today, and, um, you know, the court can go for an extended amount of time in discussing what the factors are, and it's really critical that your attorney be able to relate to the court uh, why or why not um, the number yielded by the guideline is appropriate. So tell us what happened in the case today. Um, in the case today, it was actually um, a pretty interesting result because the parties are in an, in an early stage in the divorce process. Um, no discovery has been completed. Uh, we're basically relying on the representations of the party. And um, our client, or my client today, um, was basically living off of his pension and his Social Security, and the opposing party was only living off of her Social Security. So the court had only these financial factors to rely on. We plugged that into the into the digital master, and it yielded a number. I argued to the court that this number was extravagant, that the marital standard of living was not um, as glamorous as the other party was representing. And we, we were able to lower the number a little bit. But um, what I would relate to our listeners today, it's really critical that you bring as much evidence, as much uh, paperwork, anything describing what the marital standard of living was in your case, and be able to, to give that ammunition to your attorney so they can best argue for a result. So we got a decent result for our client today, um, but it's, it could have been aided more if, if uh, we were a little bit further along in the process or we had some more information. But... Um, uh, it was a. We were. I was in court. I got there at eight thirty this morning. I didn't. I didn't leave until twelve thirty. Um, both because of our process and and the extended amount of hearings in, in front of the judge today. So um, it was a pretty complex, pretty complex matter. Interesting. Interesting. How much was the uh, other side seeking, and how much were we willing to pay before the court hearing? So the. This was the interesting part. The other party was seeking only a quote-unquote reasonable amount of support, which was essentially code for guidelines. Um, we had made several offers uh, before... We had made several offers before the result of the guideline number, which the opposing party refused outright at multiple junctures. Um, and it wasn't our client's position that he wouldn't be willing to pay support. It was just a question of what the numbers were 
um, we were arguing that the opposing party received income from other sources. The court took in some of those factors and denied others. Um, so, you know, we won on some points, the opposing party won on some points, and our, our clients um, ended up paying paying an appropriate amount uh, of support, about $2,000 a month. Okay, $2,000 a month for a lot of people is a lot of money. It is a was lot our of client, correct. Was our, was our client the higher income earner? Significantly higher, um, and this is this is one of the factors I was pointing to earlier. Is that um, the p- purpose of support per the Family Code is to place the other party in a position to maintain the marital standard of living, and then post judgment is to give them enough support so that they can re-enter the workforce re- or get education or training that allows them to get an, a, an appropriate job so that they can be self-supporting. In our case, this was a marriage of 40 years where uh, the opposing party basically stopped working due to the high income of our client. Um, and so um, our I'm client... So, I'm to, sorry, Raj. Yeah. Raj? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm sorry. Uh, How long did you say they've been married? 40 years. Okay. That's a long time. That's about a very long time. <laughs> So our client, even though he was married for 40 years, he's still working? He is now uh, retired and living off of a a pension, Social Security, and a a few investment streams. So the money, he he still gets monthly income from all of these sources, and his pension was significant. Um, And so that's what accounted for the large amount of support because he received a large pension and the, the wife received a, you know, a paltry um, Social Security disbursement every month. Now, how long do you think he's going to have to pay that amount? Well, the order for today was for temporary spousal support. So this is just support pending the, the outcome of or the end of the litigation. Um, after that, because of how the length of the marriage, and this is another one of the factors, um, People always often ask, well, how long am I going to have to pay? Do I have to pay till they're dead? Do I have to pay until they get married again? And the answer to that is it depends on how long the marriage was. In our case today, this is what the court deems as a long-term marriage. So for a marriage of more than 10 years, the court deems that a long-term marriage, and support can last for an indeterminate amount of time. The court retains jurisdiction over it and can uh, in can compel support to be paid until the other party either remarries or is 100% self-supporting. Um, so our our client today is going to be paying until the outcome of the litigation, and then post-judgment will probably continue to be paying for a long amount of time, uh, but that's always subject to modification as income and other factors of their um, standard of living change. I see, I see. Who was the, um, well, don't mention the opposing counsel's name, but <laughs> was the opposing counsel from the same city we're in? No. They were from no? closer to where this, this case was being heard in um, the East L.A. area, and so he was more local to that to that uh, courtroom. Very well. Okay, so that we've talked about uh, some spousal support. Let's move on to our next topic. What was our next topic? Um, I think uh, 
we should talk about how people can start their divorce case and uh, what sort of basic documents they need to to get their case started and maybe even ask for spousal support um, if they're initiating a case. Okay, tell me about that. How do I get a divorce started? Uh, so getting your divorce started is actually quite simple. There's not a lot of forms involved. It's actually just a matter of putting your stuff together and, and going about the process the correct way. So um, there are several online resources. Like I say, almost every week, uh, you know, in the digital age, all of these forms are typically available online. Um, it's obviously, as from our show, we, we encourage people to seek the advice of an attorney to help them put their forms together and make sure they're done correctly. Um, but for those people who don't have access to um, financial resources, there are resources through the courts or through legal aid organizations that can help them out. Um, but to get started, basically you need four forms. Um, the first is called uh, an SL100. This is your petition. And uh, this is the form on which you state your name, the opposing party's name, the length of your marriage, um, what kinds of things you're going to be asking for, child support, spousal support, attorney's fees, all of these things basically outlining all the issues related to your divorce. Um, you're going to need what's called an S-110, which is the summons. And uh, another disclaimer I should make is each locality has certain local forms that might be required to be added. So I would encourage people to either ask their attorney or um, go to the courthouse and ask, and ask if they need any special local forms. But... Um, the basic forms you need are the 100, like I've been saying, the 110. If you have children, you need the court to obtain jurisdiction over the children. So you need, you're going to need a form what's called the UCCJEA. And it's a nationwide form that lets the court know that the court has jurisdiction over the children of this divorce. And then also you're going to need a blank copy of the response papers, which are called the FL120. So not only do you have to get your own forms together, you have to compile, you have to present the response forms to the opposing party. So you put these four forms together, you fill them out, you take them to the courthouse, uh, you file them, get them stamped, and then you have to serve them on the opposing party. And that's all I have to do to get a divorce started? That's, pre that's pretty much it. <laughs> what do you have to do to get your divorce started? Um, the critical step that I think a lot of people miss and what uh, frustrates judges the most is failing to properly serve your documents. Um, in order to get your case started, you have to personally serve the opposing party with a copy of these documents. What that means is someone, not the moving party, over the age of 18 and not involved in the case needs to almost literally hand the documents to the opposing party address or at some other location and then fill out a form and provide it to the court acknowledging that they did this. Um, people can do this through either a professional process serving company uh, or they can have a friend or family member execute it for them. Like I said, someone over the age of 18 not involved in the case. Um, but it's very critical that people personally serve these documents and inform the court that they did. Because if you don't do that, then the court can't get jurisdiction over your case. The, the ticking clock on 
the requirements of the opposing party don't begin. So um, it's critical that not only do you file these documents, but you have to serve a copy of them on the opposing party. I see, I see. So once I file these documents, what if I have issues of child custody and child visitation and child support? What do I do? So if you have issues of child custody, child support, you can do a couple of things. Um, depending on the nature of your relationship with the opposing party, the two of you can always work out a, a personal agreement uh, either written or unwritten, preferably written, um, as to how you're going to exchange custody of the children while this process is going on. Um, divorces come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. Some are more mm -hmm. amicable than others. So if you're in a situation where things are reasonably amicable and the parties can have that conversation, you can go about doing that without any further interference from the court. However, if your divorce is, is like most, it's probably very contentious. So and when you want to do that, you're going to need to petition the court for um, interim orders regarding custody to um, set up the guidelines as to how people are to interact with their children pending the outcome of the litigation. And you do that via what's called a request for order. Um, that's on form FL300. Um, it's another one of those complex forms in which you outline along with some certain attachments, um, what you're requesting in, for, in terms of custody, why you're requesting it, and attaching any evidence that you might have as to why your requests should be granted. Now, do you are those forms difficult to fill out? I mean, I've been, Vincent, you and I have been doing this for a, a decent amount of time. To us, they're not difficult to fill out. I think to the average layperson, they can be confusing. Um, and if people want to follow along with us, you know, they can do a Google search or um, whatever search engine they prefer and pull up these forms. Um, you always want to make sure that the form you're looking at is the court's mo most updated version. And so if you look in the bottom left-hand corner of any of these forms, it will tell you when these forms were revised. Um, the court's most recent version was revised January 1 of 2015. So you always want to make sure you're using the current and most updated form. Um, filling it out, uh, the document can be very complicated. Um, you're going to have to list the children's names, what custody provisions you want, um, and schedules. And this can get into some deep minutiae. You can have uh, weekly schedules, daily schedules, holiday schedules, um, and a whole host of other things. So to make sure that you're doing it correctly, it's always advisable to either seek the assistance of an attorney or go to one of these organizations, legal aid or the courthouse, and make sure that you have all of them correctly filled out. Um, because what happens more often than not, people fill them out or they fill them out the wrong way. And if you don't state exactly what you want in the way you want it, the court can't help you reach a resolution or will put you to a continuing state or ask you to amend your forms. So um, uh, I think as they say, you know, uh, check it twice, submit it once. That's kind of the motto. So you want to make sure everything is perfect, everything is attached uh, before you go submit these things. I see. Do you... Um 
file these papers with the court, and do you have to serve the other party? Yes. So just like just like everything, there's two steps to to any process. You have to compile your forms. You have to file them. You have to file them timely, and then you have to serve the other party in a timely fashion. Um, so on these requests for order, the standard processing time is you have to file and serve the opposing party at least 16 court days before the time for the hearing. Um, so people have to make sure that when they're putting these documents together, you can't ask for a hearing the next day. Depending on certain circumstances, you can, but typically uh, you need to file these in the in the correct order and um, filing windows in order to let the opposing party know about the hearing, prepare for the hearing, and respond to it in an appropriate way. You know, Raj, you make it sound like filling out these forms is so easy, but I know um, the court is looking for evidence. How Correct. does one who does how does one who doesn't have an attorney present such evidence? Um, the first step is to compile it. So, for instance, let's say um, there's nasty text messages or there's evidence of bad conduct of, of one parent, anything you have in terms of pictures or um, text messages or any sort of documentary evidence that you would potentially want to admit as evidence at the hearing, you need to attach them as an exhibit. In order to correctly attach them as an exhibit, you need to separate them, uh, number them or letter them depending on your position, and um, submit it to the court. Um, it's also advisable to attach a written declaration. Uh, if people will look at the form FL300, there's a on page four. There's a blank area where you can write in the reasons why you're asking for what you're asking for. But this is a very small area. Um, if you want to explain yourself in a greater fashion, you can either use the court's form called an MC031, which is an attachment and a declaration for that purpose. Or you can write one out on pleading paper, um, but remembering that you cannot exceed 10 pages in length unless you have special permission of the court. So you've got to attach your stuff the right way, but you also have to be concise and to the point in submitting, in submitting all of these documents together. Now, I gather that the declaration is probably the most important thing in your RFO. Would you agree? Uh, I would I would say that the declaration and the exhibits are the probably the two most critical points. Um, you know, when you're going in front of a judge, the judge knows the law and they know the reasons um, why they should decide one way or the other. Um, so, typically, people will and attorneys will attach what's called a memorandum of points and authorities, stating the legal reasoning why their client's position is is the more correct one. Um, but what it really typically sways on are the declarations of fact by each of the parties that they supplement their moving papers with. So people need to be very concerned, very detailed, and very accurate and to the point as to the specific events that have caused them to make this motion. So um, putting that together should be a strong point of emphasis and take your time. Um, you want to make sure your spell check is right, that your grammar is good, that you 
submit the argue, submit the events in a way that's coherent and easy to understand to the judge. So um, the declaration is highly critical party making a motion to the court. Now, what about these pesky things called evidentiary objections? <laughs> uh, it was a. It's funny that you bring that up. Um, the hearing before mine today um, was a, actually a domestic violence restraining order, but um, it was the maybe one of the few times where I saw two attorneys battling back and forth with evidentiary objections at almost every turn, to the point where the judge got annoyed with them. But it's um, it was useful, and um, it's probably something I could I is helpful in relaying to our listeners today that um, your evidence needs to be submitted in the correct form and needs to be explained in the right form. So um, when submitting it, you got you have to make sure that your documents are submitted in the right way. So um, if you have text messages, if you have documentary evidence, you've got to make sure they're printed out, that they show the date in which they were taken, um, how they were taken, um, all these other kinds of things, so that the opposing party has no ground upon which to say that the documents are improper. And uh, sometimes what's the biggest objection is that the other party wasn't properly notified that these things were, that this evidence wasn't being brought in. So by attaching your exhibits to your moving papers, you already put the other party on notice as to all the things that you're going to be referring to in your case. So um, uh, correctly compiling your forms and attaching your exhibits and putting good exhibits together um, can help to overcome these evidentiary objections. Okay. What was the next topic we were going to talk about tonight? Uh, the next topic, well, actually, I wanted to go back, uh, Vince, for one second. Um, you know, with, whenever there's all of these forms that you're putting together, um, there's a, uh, getting a result in the courts isn't always free. So uh, I also want to advise a lot of our listeners that they all, always want to look into um, filing a fee waiver with the court. Um, this is a form that, depending on your income and expenses, or depending on whether you receive certain um, benefits from the state, you can potentially have the court waive your fees. So whenever you're filing your forms, a divorce can be costly. Just to file your initial forms costs over $400. So um, for some people um, who have trouble putting that amount of money together, um, you always want to look at potentially submitting a fee waiver to the court to uh, help you reduce your costs and your initial expenses as much as possible. And um, having an attorney doesn't necessarily mean you cannot get a fee waiver. So um, don't be dissuaded by the fact that an attorney might help you out and that would eliminate or minimize your costs. So um, I always want to counsel people to try and keep their costs efficient, streamline their costs, and so always look into getting a fee waiver. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Vince? Oh, I I, I agree with you totally about the fee waiver. Um, it can save you literally hundreds, if not in some cases, a couple thousand dollars because there's so yeah. many things that happen yeah. during the case. You may have the fee for filing the case, which I think is around $490 and change now. There is the fee for filing um, uh, motions during the case, RFOs. 
there's the fee for sometimes having the court reporter. There's the fee for uh, sometimes if you want to file an appeal to a higher court. So all of these amounts of money for doing things in your family law case add up. So I would suggest, just as you have, that they always consider the fee waiver. Raj, I'm going to take a call right now. Um, oh, great. Area code, six, area code 626, ending in 76. Good evening. You're on with attorneys Vincent Davis and Raj Matani. Hi, Vince. My name is Chris. Can you hear me? I can. Do you have your radio on in the background? No. Okay, is go there ahead. Some kind of... Okay. So um, I'm at the end of my divorce. In fact, the divorce has been finalized and recorded. And the my ex was told he had to pay a thousand dollars a month in alimony. So now my ex says that he lost a contract and he can't pay that anymore. And now he wants me to actually pay him. I do not have an esthetician and my hands are so messed up I can't even write my name anymore so it's impossible for me to uh, carry on and work and make any kind of an income Um, so what are the chances now we have to go to court next week yeah no Thursday of this week so what are the chances he has an office. He's paying for a secretary. He's paying, you know, he has to lease this office space. He's buying office equipment. So, obviously, he's got an income. So, what do you think the chances are they'll actually say, no, he doesn't have to pay me anything, and they'll make me pay him? Raj, why don't you handle that question for her? Sure, sure. I'm sorry, I didn't catch your your name, by the way. Chris. Chris. Okay. Chris, um, you said that your your case has been finalized. So, when did you have your judgment entered? How long ago? Um, probably just a couple months ago. Okay. And for how long were you and your ex married? Seventeen years. Seventeen years. And do you have any children? No. No. Okay. So you're the only money you're receiving from him is spousal support, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, and in he fact, made a motion- in, uh, Raj, I'm, I'm when he uh, when he filed with the court this claim that he lost this lucrative contract, mm-hmm. he stopped paying. He stopped paying me. So I haven't received any payments since. Uh, probably November. Okay. Okay. So, for your hearing, it's actually his burden to show that he's no longer able to maintain these payments, which means he needs to bring evidence to the hearing saying that he lost his contract, that his income was previously previously X dollars, and has been reduced to this, this now new amount of money. Um. 
there's a way that you can also make him prove that. Um, there's a local rule asking that he bring all of his taxes or uh, financial documents to the hearing. If he doesn't meet that burden to show that his income is much less than what it used to be, I doubt the court is going to change anything. But it's going to be heavily critical on him to show that. I mean, essentially all you need to do is say, I, you know, I'm in the same position I previously was. I'm unable to work. I need this money. And um, unless he can make an affirmative showing that his income has changed and he can't make, a, can't make the payments, um, then, you know, that's, that's his burden to show. Does it make any difference that he actually is paying for a secretary and paying a lease on an office and, you know, and I have nothing. My business was totally destroyed. I have nothing. And those those are actually things you can bring up to the judge is he's maintaining this large business, so it could, it's potentially probative of how much money he's actually making. If he's still able to... Uh, support this large business, then um, clearly he has potentially the ability to maintain the support. Um, but what I think the court is really going to hinge on is the exact dollar amount. So you could ask him for his taxes, you could ask him for a profit and loss of his business, a whole bunch of other things that would need to show that his income isn't what it, what he states that it is. And unless he can prove that his income is lower... Um, I don't know that the court would have enough facts to make a to make a change. Okay. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Vince, do you have anything to add? Well, I was wondering, has Chris, have you filed your responsive papers and declarations for the court hearing on Thursday? Um, you know, I don't know. I have a I don't have the best of relationships with my attorney, which is probably not a good thing. Um, you know, I've gone to court several times, and I haven't been prepared. I thought I was, and it turned out to be something totally different. So I guess the best thing for me to do would be to I need to contact the attorney and see, you know, I I did submit something to her, I guess that would be considered my declaration. I don't know. So may I, may I respectfully suggest that you contact your attorney first thing tomorrow morning so that you can get all of this clarified because we're talking about thousands of dollars, tens of thousands yeah. of dollars. Right. And if you don't approve if you don't approach this in the right way, you might lose out on that money. And that's a lot of money. Okay. All right. Good luck okay. to you. Okay. I'll follow up on that immediately. All righty. Thank you. All right. Thank okay, you, Chris. Thanks. Best of luck. Bye. Bye. So, Raj, I was a little surprised she said she had an attorney. <laughs> that was uh, maybe she was calling us for a second opinion, but uh, you know, I think as you and I have both learned, you got to ask the questions to get the answers. So I was surprised she had an attorney too. Yeah. Anyway, so going to our third topic, what was our third topic for this evening? That's actually a great segue 
in terms of what her her having an attorney as to how we can potentially represent people using what's called limited scope representation or unbundled services. Um, so let's get right into it. How does that sound, Vince? Go right ahead. All right. Most people know the traditional law firm model. Everything you see on TV or uh, hear from your friends, you give an attorney a large sum of money up front, and then maybe like the previous caller, uh, you hope and pray that your attorney does the right things and you get a bill at the end of the month and you don't always know what you paid for. Um, there's a new trend in, in legal services called limited scope representation or unbundled services. What this allows, and this is something that our office offers, what it allows us to do is help you out piece by piece for a smaller chunk of money and uh, control the cost somewhat of your case. So in a limited scope case, you would hire our firm to do a specific set of work or make a specific appearance and pay a set fee for that representation. Um, it would be spelled out in your fee agreement exactly what we would do for you and how much it would cost. You pay that money, we do the appearance or we do the document production, whatever it is that we agree to, and that would be the extent of our representation. Um, if there is court appearances involved, we would come in for that appearance only and you go back to being self-represented at the conclusion of that of that case. There is So it's also called unbundled services, meaning you hire the firm to do a specific set of work each time. So in a divorce case, you could hire an attorney to do just your petition or just your request for order or appear at the hearing after you've already compiled all the documents. And it's a great way for clients to control their costs and pay out piece by piece instead of submitting a large sum of money, getting a bill at the end of the month, and and sort of wondering what happened. So um, it's something that our office offers, and we, uh, upon a consultation, we can submit this uh, option to you and see if it's something that works works for you. How is uh, Vince? How have you found clients responding to this option? Well, I, a lot of clients um, like the idea, but since it's, it's such a new concept, relatively new concept, a lot of clients don't understand the concept. So let me give you a little background. The California Superior Court was concerned that approximately 70% of the people in family law cases are not represented by attorneys. Now, when I heard that number, I was shocked. I was actually surprised, but then I thought about it when I go to court. On most of the cases, um, family law cases, there are people that are not represented by attorneys. On the flip side of that, there was always a problem that if a client hired you as an attorney, that even if you wanted to get off the case because, let's say, the client couldn't afford to pay you. There were always obstacles for the attorney in getting off the case. So we had two problems. Number one, not enough people had access to justice in family law cases. And, you know, there are important issues in family law cases. There are custody and visitation issues for children and their parents. There are domestic violence issues 
there are support issues, both child support and spousal support. There are issues of the fair distribution or division of property, both assets and debts. So the state legislature and the superior court, I think, got together and said, you know, we can we can solve some of these problems, and that would be by letting attorneys charge less and just offer menued services to clients. So let me give you an example. This happened not too long ago, uh, just last week. A woman calls me and says, look, I want to get divorced and, you know, the whole bit. She told me the story. And um, one of the problems was because she didn't have access to finances, she was not able to retain us on a full-scope representation. And I think I quoted her maybe about $4,000 for a a full-scope representation, which is the traditional method, and we take care of everything. So, but she wanted to get divorced. She wanted to file divorce papers. She had a very simple, straightforward um, uh, divorce, and she asked me how much would it would I charge her just to file the divorce? Well, what she was asking me for, without her knowing it, she was asking me for what's called unbundled services or that limited scope representation. So I think I charged her $750 or $850 just to prepare the paperwork, have it filed, and then have it served on the on her husband. Now, she paid the filing fees because she was employed, and uh, she paid for the service. Uh, I think we had the sheriff's department serve her husband uh, at his job. Now, she only spent $750. She didn't pay the $4,000 up front, which is a big difference. Now, as as time has come by, she has contacted me again, and she said, I want you to file paperwork so that I can get spousal support. How much would you charge me for that? So I quoted her the, the cost for preparing the paperwork, and I quoted her cost for attending the hearing, which in my opinion is probably the most important part of that. She hired us to do both of those things, all right? And so we're going to have a court hearing regarding her spousal support. So as time goes on, she's able to break up the amount of money that she has to pay an attorney. She doesn't get any month-end bill that has a lot of charges that she may not even be familiar with. She just pays a set fee for a set amount of work, and that's what's called bundled or excuse me, unbundled services or limited scope representation. I am aware that there is um, some move afoot to try to do this in other areas of law Um, because the general rule was for the attorney, if you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. So no matter what the client paid you or didn't pay you, you're stuck on the case. But with these limited scope representations, certain documents are filed with the court and given to copies given to all sides that says, hey, Mr. Attorney just represents this client with this particular matter. And so it's good for the attorney and it's also good for the client because it, the client is actually controlling their costs for this divorce 
or child custody litigation. So what I think I'm going to do, Raj, as we move forward as a law firm, is I'm going to be focusing on unbundled services. Um, that way, I think at the end of the month, the client doesn't get a bill, and then the lawyer doesn't have uncollected accounts receivables. So yeah. it's it's basically a pay-as-you-go method for people to do their uh, divorce in California. Yeah, I, I actually think it's one of the innovations in, in terms of business practice for for attorneys and for the public. Um, for the, our listeners who don't know, I was a solo practitioner before I, before I joined Vince's firm, and I specifically uh, was trying to assist people who didn't have access to justice, so low-income and middle-income families. And I found that these unbundled services were a great way for people. It actually serves two purposes. It helps them get the advice of an attorney for a, for a specific need, and it kind of allows the client to test drive the attorney and test drive that relationship and to see how the two parties work together. And then if you, you know, if, if that seems to work, people will come back to the attorney more often than not if the attorney provides good work. So it's, it's a, a mutual benefit to all parties involved. And it's a great way for clients to help control their costs, get access to justice, and have competent representation uh, at every stage of the process. So um, it's one of the things that I, I think is great for everybody. When you were in private practice, did you have a, um, did you promote unbundled, offering unbundled services? I almost exclusively did flat fee and unbundled services. Almost completely. Um, and, uh, I didn't even have to specially market it or do anything like that. When clients came, it's one of the first things I offered, and I explained in detail how how it could help them control their costs. And nine times out of ten, they always pick that because, you know, like we I think we said at the beginning, the typical hurdle to hiring an attorney is having three to four thousand, maybe five thousand dollars. If you go to a Beverly Hills attorney, they're going to charge you five to thousand dollars plus just to have their name on your case. And so um, I offered this as a as a significant part of my practice, and it was great. It was great. It was great for me, and it was great for the clients. There's one contract. There's one disbursement of payments, um, and that was it. And it's, it was great for everybody involved. So no big surprise bills for clients at the end of the month. And um, – uh, you still have to provide the client with a breakdown of your services and see what they see what it is that you earn, but the the clients know that um, at every point they know exactly what they paid and they know exactly what they're getting. Um, and I think people don't understand sometimes. Every time you your your attorney touches your case, it costs you money. Um, and so this is sort of another way to help control your costs is by doing these flat fee or unbundled uh, unbundled options. Okay, unbundled limited scope. I think I'm going to uh, we're going to be promoting that more and yeah. more. Raj, we're running out of time. What was the last topic we were going to talk about? Um, I think if uh, if people want to get back to it, um, we can talk about 
child custody and child visitation because I think that's the number one question that's always on people's minds. Um, we've I feel like we can talk about this every week, every week if needed. Um, but uh, it's it's an area of, of family law that creates the most tension between parties. So um, let me ask you, Vince, have you had any, uh, any cases recently that have sort of uh, brought some new issues to mind or or is, uh, an account that you can tell the listeners about a, a particularly complicated case involving child custody and child visitation? You know, Raj... I um, do a lot of high-conflict child custody and child visitation cases. Um, And it never ceases to amaze me what some people will do to try to alienate their child from the other parent. Yeah. You know, just, just when I think that I have saw and heard everything... I see something else. And what I what I find a lot of times is, you know, the child custody and visitation arguments really arise out of the personal relationships between the mother and the father. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you about a case, or I'll tell the listeners about a case, and you're, you're, you're well aware of this case in our office, Raj, where the mother, because she has negative feelings against the father, is trying to make the father's uh, visitation and custodial time, you know, is trying to always cut it down, cut it down, cut it down. In this particular case, we represent the father. And this guy just wants to be a dad. He just wants, you know, 50-50 custody with his daughter. Um, But because there is so much animosity um, between the parents, and more so the, 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 the mother towards the father, we're getting caught up in these huge and very expensive expensive child custody battles. Um, And I see what's called parental alienation. And that's where one person turns the child against the other parent for various reasons. They alienate the child against the, the other parent. And I'm seeing that, and I don't know why, I don't know if it's just coincidence, but I'm seeing it a lot more in cases where I'm involved in. Um, I'm in the middle of two different, basically what are custody battles and visitation battles. And the funny thing is that the attorney for the other parent is the same on both cases. Yeah. On On both of these cases, the mothers are represented by the same attorney and I represent the father in both cases, but the people aren't related. It just yeah. turns out to be a coincidence. And in, in both cases, are basically mirrored cases, you know, um, mirrored cases of one another. It's the same exact thing. The mother doesn't want the father to have, you know, a substantial amount of custodial and visitation time. 
and is doing, you know, bizarre things to uh, try to win the case. And I, 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 to be honest with you, I think it's backfiring on the uh, on the on the mothers in both cases. Um, I just found out the other day that uh, uh, the mother in one of the cases uh, called up the children's therapist and. I'm not going to say she asked the therapist to lie, but she asked the therapist to come to court and testify, testify in a certain way, um, which is, you know, highly inappropriate in my opinion. Um, and but, potentially borderline illegal, but yeah, <laughs> inappropriate might yeah. be a good way to describe it. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, Raj. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'm seeing a lot more of that parental alienation these days. And, you know, um, not only is it a way for one parent to get back at another parent because they don't like them or for revenge or spite or whatever it is, um, but it also has a relationship to child support. You know, um, the more visitation a father has, generally that's the less he pays less in child support. So the numbers are inverted. More time with the child, you pay less child support. So if you're a vindictive mother who has custody, you don't want the father to be at 50%. You want him to be at 10%. Not only do you get back at him because he doesn't get to see his child as much, but now you get more money in child support. Right. It's a calculated move. Um, by either party to use the custody battle as an arm to get more more support. Um, and, you know, I was there on that case with you. I know exactly which one you're talking about. And I, I would agree with your position as to the motivations of, of the mothers. Um, this parental alienation concept is actually somewhat new. I went to a seminar about a week or two ago on this specific issue Parental alienation is a growing area in the psychological field and I think only recently has been introduced to the standard manual of psychologists as a as a term. Um, and so it's a real thing that happens. It's a real thing that affects parties and it's necessary that, the, that parties be aware of it and potentially get an attorney to help them litigate through this issue because... If one parent is excluding another party or alienating a child, um, there have to be aggressive steps taken to issue from exacerbating. And um, it's always encouraged that, that people seek as much help as possible, either through therapy or through the attorney to enforce what should be the orders of the court. Hey, Raj, I forgot that you went to that conference on parental alienation, and I'd like to yeah. talk about that next week. Uh, sure. I think we should devote at least half of the show to that concept of parental alienation. Um, we're running out of time uh, tonight. Uh, we will see you next week on the radio, Family Law and Divorce Talk Radio Show. Thank you for joining us this evening. Good night. Good night.